Isolation enables one to get some idea of the bitter tenacity with which a feeling of suspicion, of dislike, of prejudice against a person or a family may hang on, of the fashion in which that feeling may sweep mercilessly over a little community like this one, until it resembles nothing so much as the far-off witch killings in old Salem, Massachusetts. I'm Samantha Engel. I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, the Dudgeon Swamp Mystery. And something we were going to do in our sort of preview episode, but uh, we thought would work better with this one, is to give you a little insight into what historians do and how they do it with regard to evidence and sources. Sam, what do we do as historians with regard to evidence and sources? We rely on primary sources. Um, that's that's what we like the, the most um, to get to the as much of a truth <laughs> as you can in, in a historical event. So a primary source is something from the time period, be it a, you know, a letter, a diary, newspaper clippings to ascertain the ideas and thoughts of, of you know, the people at that time. But we hunt for those things uh, and we use a variety of different resources to do that. Yeah, I actually explained it to my students uh, this way, that historians use these bits of evidence from the time period they're studying as the raw materials to create a narrative, to craft a story of what happened. Because we, we don't know the sequence of events without knowing what went into that. And, and you know, we don't know what happened without this evidence. We might have other people's later recollections of it after the time, not quite as helpful as stuff from the time period. And this story that we're going to tell today has some holes in it because of access to sources and things, right? Yeah, it it certainly does. Um, and and we try to fill in some of those gaps if we can with things that we know about the history, that sort of general goings on of the time period. Um, we always try to fit these things inside of a larger historical context or um, the environment in which they were occurring. And so we've tried to pull a bit of that into this story and, and we will in future stories as well. Um, but but yeah, there, there are still holes. <laughs> so the Dudgeon Swamp Mystery, what is this story? What do we know? How did we come up with this? And this is all you, Samantha, because I knew <laughs> yes. nothing of this. <laughs> Um, so this is a story that, well, I hate to say it's near and dear to my heart because that's a little creepy and unsettling, <laughs> um, but uh, it's from my hometown. Um, I am from the small town of White Cloud, Michigan, population tiny. Um, my graduating class was 82, um, if you want a little bit of context there. Um, but this was always a story that I had heard growing up and people in the town have always heard growing up as well. And it it you know, was incorporated into Halloween parties and and things like that. And it actually, this swamp area is quite close to where I lived um, my my whole childhood life. Um, and so, should should I dive into the story that I know? Yeah. What did okay, you learn right. as a child? So, so I was told of the Dungeon Swamp murders, or the Dungeon Swamp story, or the haunted Dungeon Swamp. Um, and it, and it went something like this: there was this sort of 
rough and tumble type family um, who lived out in this swamp. And um, there were rumors that the the daughter of the family, you know, had sort of been raped by brothers. There were incestuous babies um, that were that were later killed. Then the daughter got married. Brothers didn't like it. Brothers murdered him. Um, of course, he was found hanging in a barn, but it was murder. And and the dungeons did this, and therefore the swamp is just this haunted mess area <laughs> of of you know strange strange goings on. Lights, cars turning off. Um, I was talking, texting with my friend just the other day, and she said, "Oh yeah, I can remember going on a a um, tractor ride. You know at a." fall party or something in the area and the tractor stopped, you know, or something like that. And, um, and so these are the types of things that, that I always heard growing up. Um, it's a messy story and I'm not going to try to sort of recreate the, the bits and details because it was always messy in my mind. And I always had to, mom, what was that story again? So, um, that's that's what I knew. And so that's definitely what I wanted to 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 use, at least in the first set. And it happened to be the first episode that we did because um, personal connections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and so this this the, the Dudgeon family, the Dudgeon Swamp, it, it's if you look on YouTube, you'll find videos by, uh, by amateur ghost hunters who go out in the swamp. And um, we'll get back to that ghost aspect because there's a couple weird things about that that make it not as haunted as it might seem at first, <laughs> unless it is, right? It's <laughs> yes. one of those deals. So before we get back to that, let's uh, let's talk about the actual story. So what was going on at the time? This is in the early 1920s when this happens. 1922, 23, 24, the whole thing plays out with a series of trials and events and things like that. And we have an image of the 1920s in our heads that is sort of the popular image of the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the jazz age, gangsters, um, <laughs> prohibition, flappers, 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 don't all of the these flappers. Im- <laughs> no, but don't forget the flappers and the sort of sexual revolution <laughs> and movies and radio and, and Babe Ruth and baseball and everybody having cars because, you know, the Model T was out and, you know, the automobile takes mm-hmm. off. And yes, those are all very true things, but those are also all very sort of urban centric images of what the 20s are. In farm country, in rural areas, um, even though the the United States was increasingly urban at this time and suburban, the economy was growing in those areas. If you were in an industrial area, you were in good shape. If you were in an agricultural area or any other rural area, times were very tough. Crop prices were plummeting. um, Industries were changing. So where was this? We know there's a swamp. I assume the swamp was not part of, you know, the massively booming Detroit area at the time. So the swamp, um, White Cloud, is uh, part of Nuago County. And so that's about an hour north of Grand Rapids, Michigan, if, if you're familiar with that. So Grand Rapids is obviously a very large city. It's, what is it, usually like the, the second or third most populous city in the state or something like that. And, and so this is an hour north, and this is lumber country. So these are folks who moved out into this area um, probably 
mid late 1800s to um, to cash in on the boom that the lumber industry was bringing. And um, by the 1920s, um, this this area had been cut over. So it's just stump and it's these families that are left um, trying to eke out a living um, in this sort of not ideal farmland <laughs> um, and a land that's filled with stumps. And so if you can think of, you know, the work that it takes to get rid of a stump today, you know, imagine what it took to get rid of acres and acres and acres of stumps back then. Uh, the other thing that the that the White Cloud area did have for it as well is um, there were railroads that ran through it. The White River um, also goes through it. So it is kind of people are passing through the area, but it's not a place where people stop and stay and, you know, hang out for a while with their friends. It's not a vacation destination or or anything like that. And newspaper accounts that we found, I think it was a Detroit Free Press article from the time mentioned that, you know, they interviewed somebody on a, getting off a train at White Cloud just sort of as a stop. He was getting off and hopping back on. And um, he said, ah, I didn't even realize there was really a town here. So um, so that was, you know, it, it was hard, hard land, hard living. Um, definitely not one filled with with speakeasies and blind pigs, right? Those are those are the the hidden bars, I think. I think so. I've yeah. heard that phrase. Yeah, or a shop um, you could buy liquor from, something I, like that. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more <laughs> like a like a carryout sort of place. Mm-hmm. So these uh, these dudgeons, um, this family, where did they come from? What was their uh, deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so um, I did a bit of research on Family Search, which is is a great way to research individuals and come up with census records. You know, all all kinds of things, birth certificates, birth certificates, marriage certificates. Um, it's sort of a, a free version of Ancestry, <laughs> so I use it personally. So I decided to to plug the dungeon names in here, and it is spelled, I should say, D U D. G-E-O-N, um, not dungeon, like, you know, underneath the castle, but dungeon. Um, it just sounds weird when you say it. Um, but yeah, so anyways, um, Alice, who is the mother. Um, so there's Alice and Charles Dungeon, and they are the the matriarch and patriarch of this family that we're speaking about. And so Alice was from Indiana, the eastern edge of Indiana, sort of right across the Ohio border. And that's also where her parents and her husband Charles were from. Alice and Charles get married in Allen County, Indiana in August of 1890, but it seems that they do some bopping back and forth um, across across that border because in 1897, so seven years later, um, I found the birth certificate for their son, Charles, and he was born in Hicksville, Defiance, Ohio. So they, And that's just, again, right across the border then on the western edge of Ohio. Um, and then in the 1900 census, they're back living in Allen County, Indiana. Um, but that doesn't last long, does it? No, they moved to Michigan in 1905, Goodwill Township, which is in Newago County, right? Newago. Newago. I keep wanting to say Newago. I, <laughs> New, well, New, yeah, Newago. 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 Wait, it's not Newago wag like and, a dog's tail. <laughs> so, so pronounce this for me. <laughs> Newago. Nuego. Yes. New. Now I can't say it right. <laughs> well, y- you leave my Nuego alone and I'll leave your dungeon alone. Okay. Yes. So they moved to Goodwill Township in 
that county in 1905. <laughs> and they buy 1,200 acres of land, which is a heck of a lot of land. That's a lot for you know people who just sort of show up out of nowhere from out of town. And most of this used to be ranch land, pasture land, things like that. They lived in an old lumber shanty while they were building their house. And even early on, the Dudgeons were getting in trouble with the neighbors. And that's going to be a, a running theme throughout these uh, these early years and indeed the whole story. Uh, Harry Spooner was a local journalist and historian, and he put it this way. Happiness was not long in store for them. 480 acres of the land was unfenced and had been used by some of the neighbors as common pasture for their cattle. These neighbors resented the fencing in of the land, and after it was fenced, they often cut the wires and let the Dudgeon stock out. Thus, the Dudgeons were put in the position right from the start of defending their rights. So this was land that everybody had sort of grazed their animals on. The Dudgeons come in and say, well, this is our land. We're fencing it off. Your animals can't come in here. Our animals are here. And the neighbors said, well, that's not right. Property rights. What are those? And, you know, cut the wires of the fence and, and just it was a mess. So as Spooner says, and as we'll see, Spooner is a sort of sympathetic speaker for the Dudgeon family. The Dudgeons are put in a position of having to defend their rights from the start. And there were other conflicts. They loaned um, money to one of their sons-in-law to buy land, and the son-in-law then leased the land to another guy without telling them, a guy named Jake Terwilliger. And when the family found out that Terwilliger was, was you know, chopping down trees and taking off the logs to sell off of their land, they got upset and, and did they take him to court? No, they beat him up. Uh, two of the brothers, the Dudgeon boys, beat him up and they were convicted of assault. Now, Spooner tells us that Terwilliger, um, or Terwilliger, I'm not sure. Gur. Gur, okay, hard G. Yeah. Was in- <laughs> they lived up the road from oh, me. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, not 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 this guy. Oh, right. But. I was going to say, you're not that old. <laughs> um, Terwilliger was an influential man in the neighborhood, and um, this just widened the gap between the Dudgeons and the rest of their neighbors. There was another neighbor named Tom Scott who got in a fight with them about property and being on the property where they shouldn't have been, and two of the Dudgeon boys, Lee and Wilmer, um, got beat up by Scott. But the Dudgeons were the ones arrested and convicted of assault, even though supposedly, according to Spooner, they were the victims. Whenever anything weird or wrong or bad happened in this area, as Spooner puts it, quote, the rural finger of suspicion pointed to the Dudgeons, end quote, the rural finger now that's a really great it line. is the rural finger of <laughs> I, I grew up in the country I've, I've often encountered the rural finger of suspicion <laughs> pointing at me so in 1921 the one of the dudgeon daughters named Mita, who's sometimes called meaty is married to romy hodel and hodel had met the dudgeons when he worked for them and it was only three weeks between the first time Mita and Romy met that they got married. And well, this is this is weird because Mita also had been in a relationship with a guy named Carl Sailors, who Hodel, her new husband, was insanely jealous of. So that same year, you've got these newlyweds, Mita and Romy. Romy's father, 
David Hodel, who's Mita's father-in-law, comes to stay with them. He and his the rest of his family and his wife were in Detroit. He leaves the wife and family behind and comes to live with Romy. Um, David could not stand living in the city. He hated living in the city. His wife did not want to live elsewhere. And so their marriage was fairly rocky. So most of the families in Detroit, you've got Mita, Dudgeon Hodel, Romy Hodel, and Father David living in the house. If you've ever lived with your in-laws for more than about six hours, you know there is trouble coming. So that's a lot of background information, but we thought it really set the stage well for what was going on at the time, like big, big picture, as well as what was going on in Nuego County, and then zooming in specifically on the Dudgeon family. Um, So now we're going to turn to our sources. So we're going to be relying on several different sources to recreate the timeline of the events that we're about to share. Uh, We found several different accounts online. But again, we as historians like to find that um, uh, primary source evidence. (laughs) So we're going to be looking at newspaper articles. And most of these articles are from larger cities, which we will explain later, as well as an account written by Harry Spooner, who we mentioned before as being a journalist and sort of local historian of the era. He put together quite a timeline as well. So we're going to weave these things together to create sort of the the what happened in the order that it happened um, as as factually as we can as we can be without having been there ourselves which is what historians like to do yes yes it is <laughs> um yes so on february 4th david hodell the father dies while carrying in wood while staying at the dungeon home. Um, He was not a terribly well man. He was described as feeble already. Um, And and it's winter, and a Nuego County winter is harsh. (laughs) Lots of snow, lots of cold. So he went to get firewood and and he just sort of dropped dead. Um, The doctor at the time um, said that he had died of a stroke. Uh, later, um, a few months later, Romy was to leave to work outside of town and Mita was going to move back in with her family. So remember, Mita and Romy are married and they have a house of their own. But while Romy's gone, he's a stumper. So his job is to literally go around pulling all of those stumps out of the ground in these areas. And so he is fi- finds a new job, a new lead, um, and it, it's far enough away that he's going to stay there and doesn't want to leave Mita alone. So she's going to move back in with her mother and brothers because I guess we didn't mention this, but Charles had died. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Patriarch Patriarch Dungeon was dead. So we should <laughs> we should probably say that um, the family is being led by Alice, who I just imagine to be a very hearty lady. Uh, she she <laughs> seems like a real that. battle axe. I I yes, really think that, that I would too. not mess with Alice Dungeon. No, as, as we will no. see, <laughs> maybe for good reason. Yes. <laughs> So Lee, uh, who is Maida's brother, one of the Dudgeon boys, and Romy, Maida's husband, had had a fight before or the night before Romy was set to leave. 
Um, and then uh, on May 6th, Romy Hodel is found hanging in his barn dead. It's an apparent suicide. Um, while, however, preparing the body for burial, an undertaker finds a spot of blood and perhaps a wound on the back of the neck. Which, honestly, if you think of someone hanging, that doesn't seem that odd. (laughs) But but to them, it was odd. Maybe it's not actually the suicide it seemed to be. And it should also be pointed out that there were other reasons to believe, perhaps, that this was suicide. Because Romy had had quite a few... he, he was in debt. He had, you know, he owed a lot of people money. Um, he actually um, confesses or there's a story that he tells Mita that night before that he's wanted for murdering somebody in another town or helping to cover it up, I guess, is what it was. Um, and so there are all of these little threads that would leave one to believe that this is a man who was desperate enough to potentially commit suicide. But the undertaker says, maybe it's not suicide. And so in the May 10th, 1922 edition of a lot of newspapers, because it was an Associated Press wire report, the one I got was from the Lansing State Journal, um, White Cloud Farmer murdered body of Romy D. Hodel found suspended from rafter and barn. Sheriff Noble McKinley, great name, reiterated Wednesday his belief that Romy Hodel, Goodwill Township farmer whose body was found suspended from a rafter in his barn, was the victim of an attack and did not take his own life. We believe Hodel was killed by being hit on the head and neck with a heavy, blunt instrument, he said. Sheriff McKinley declined to disclose the names of two men held in jail in connection with the case. Charges have not yet been preferred against anyone, he stated. Dr. H.S. Turner and P.T. Walters, testifying before the coroner's jury Tuesday, said Hodel did not die of strangulation. Quote, the tissues of the neck were mangled as if struck by a heavy blow, they said. So a bit of blood on the neck, a wound on the neck, maybe a giant contusion on the neck from some sort of clubbing thing. So the newspapers go pretty quiet after this from May into the summer, things are not very publicized as the investigation is ongoing, but it's not going as quickly as some people want it to. On July 30, there is a mob formed that extracts confessions from Lee Dudgeon and Herman Dudgeon. Um, according to the August 1st Detroit Free Press, they were taken to the jail in Big Rapids basically for their own protection to avoid further violence. Also arrested, but not charged at this time, was Robert Bennett, who was the Dudgeon family's hired hand. The Dudgeon boys claimed that Bennett killed Hodel and forced them to get rid of the body. But that confession was, or that claim was, was coerced. So basically, here's how it went down. This is from the Detroit Free Press. This is, this is wild. Working on the theory that the neighborhood was unsafe to live in under existing conditions, the Vigilance Committee sought out the Dudgeons. One of them they fastened by an arm and the other by the neck, reports say, tying a motorcycle to the other end of the rope, which first, it was said, was looped over the limb of a tree. The Dudgeons then, those present claim, admitted their part in the Hodel case. Sam, if you were grabbed by a mob, had a rope thrown around your neck, thrown over a tree, tied to a motorcycle, and they start moving that motorcycle, what are you going to do? 
I'm probably going to say whatever it is <laughs> they want me to say to keep from that motorcycle continuing to move. Yeah, that's going to be probably a point <laughs> that defense attorneys are going to raise at some point. And and this is going to keep coming up too. And so I just want to say, I mean, there are several different things that happen throughout history where, you know, whether it's the Salem witch trials or, you know, cases of slave rebellion or the Inquisition where um, these testimonies or not testimonies, but these confessions come out and people admit to doing things. And so this is a case where historians have to look at this piece of primary evidence and be like, hmm, do we think that we should take this at face value? Probably not. We probably need to do a little bit more investigating before we believe anything that's been, you know, written under duress or or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, I just want to throw that out there that that this is something historians do struggle with um, when studying various different um, different occurrences in history. Yeah, and you know, we all know that the confessions and witch trials is a more common thing, but confessions in slave uprisings, like you said, are. Are mm-hmm. very very interesting, and I'm thinking of Nat Turner's confession and 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 things mm-hmm. like that, and, and Denmark Vesey and and other slave yeah. rebellions like that, where clearly these are under straightened circumstances. These things were extracted. I just want to throw out too that. As a child, when I learned about this lynch mob, that blew my mind because it's like, what? Those things don't, that doesn't really happen. That's a thing in movies. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, looking back now, studying it as an adult and seeing those impressions that 12 year old spooky Sam thought, oh, wow, this is such a cool story, you know, or, or whatever it is. Um, but, but yeah, to, to read about it and learn about these people really puts a new lens on things. Yeah, yeah it really does. <laughs> so at this point, the local authorities were like, we, we cannot handle this. Uh, they call it the state police. State police send some troopers to White Cloud. And the, the troopers they send, they're, they're rough guys. They're, they're, they're rough guys. One had killed a prisoner um, before during his career. And they are, um, they're taking the prisoners. They're going to interrogate them. So, of course, where do you interrogate people? Well, I've watched enough Law & Order to know that you take them into the little room with the two-way... No, you take them to a barn. <laughs> you, you take them to the barn where the body was found. And then what do you do? Oh, you wait to catch them in a lie? No, you dress up as a ghost and pre- with a sheet. This is, a real, this is real life, folks. And pretend to be the victim's ghost to scare a confession out of the suspects. And then word starts to spread. The St. Joseph Herald Press, August 12th, 1922. Headline, four confess poison murder. Meaty Hodel had confessed to killing Romy and David Hodel. He was old and feeble, and I decided he would be better off dead. I put a teaspoonful of arsenic in his coffee at noon, and he died a short time immediately after, just as he was going after an armful of wood. Then Romy was lying on a cot with his face to the wall. We quarreled frequently. I picked up a rolling pin and hit him on the back of the head as hard as I could. My mother was nearby, and as Romy was still alive, she hit him again. We then called Herman and Bennett and the men to put the body in the wagon and drove to the barn. They put a harness rein around his neck to make it look as though he killed himself. Next time, we head south to Illinois to examine the case of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. 
mass hysteria, mad scientist, government cover-up, all of them, none of them, we will find out. You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Great Lakes Lore relies on listener donations rather than advertising. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, there are links in the show notes and at greatlakeslore.com to contribute. And now a little segment we call Legend or Lie. We think we have pretty good instincts, right? Without question. But let's test that. Some local legends are so unbelievable, they sound like the storyteller made them up and sometimes get dismissed out of hand. We think, though, that we can tell the difference between a long-standing story and an amateur attempt to make one up. So this week, I'll be presenting a story to Samantha, and she will tell me whether it is a legit legend, that doesn't mean it's true, or... Just something I have made up. So, here we go. This is back in the 50s. And I lived near, not in the 50s, but I lived near a a city, Evansville, Indiana, down on the Ohio River for a few years. And back in the 1950s, there was a case where it was a super hot day. And a mom and her, uh, her kids and the mom's friend decided to cool off by sunning themselves on the banks of the Ohio River in Evansville, Indiana, and the kids were splashing in the the cool, refreshing waters of the Ohio River, and suddenly, the woman screams, something has grabbed her leg. It's a large hand, and she says it was hairy and claw-like, and it pulled her under the surface, and she had to kick it away and swim out of the water, and it grabbed her other leg, and she was grabbing, you know, some one of the kids had like a a, a tube, like a floaty thing. She grabs the floaty thing and tries to climb on board. It's it's a terrifying, terrifying ordeal. Um, The woman's leg had an imprint on it, like a blue-green imprint, the shape of a hand that was there for several days. So basically... Back in the 50s, woman got grabbed by a green, furry, clawed creature right there in Evansville, Indiana, pretty major town, um, right there on the banks of the glorious Ohio. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard the Ohio River described as glorious before. Although, what well, was Thomas Jefferson's favorite, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, huh. Blue, green, and hairy is not something I've heard of before. I'm going to say this is a lie. This is real. This is a real real claim. One of the few sort of Indiana cryptid things that doesn't just involve a turtle that people think is a little (laughs) larger than average. So, um, yeah, hairy and claw-like, blue-green stains left on her legs Mm. after a while. Um... Yeah, so it's real. So where we stand now, this is going to be a weekly thing, folks. And next week, Sam is going to try to stump me. And um, then at the end of this first run of stories, at the end of the year, we're going to see who wins. And right now, um, Sam is 0 for 1. So mm-hmm. we'll see. I knew that one would get you because it's just it's just <laughs> so improbable. So 0 for 1. 
All right. Well, better luck next time. Now let's get back to the story. Little did the family know when they arose that morning, May 6th, 1922, that as a result of the events of that day, four members of their family and a hired man of one of them would be framed by state police, subjected by them to inhuman and cruel tortures in order to force confessions to crimes they did not commit, and finally convicted of these crimes by a prejudiced jury. The story of these tortures forms one of the darkest pages in the history of criminal investigation. They are unparalleled by anything else that has ever happened in a civilized community under the pretext of detecting crime and stamp the perpetrators as greater outlaws than any murderer. Harry Spooner. All right. So if we get back to the confessions that we ended with from Maida or Meaty uh, before our break, uh, we'll also add that Alice and the two brothers, Lee and Herman, admitted complicity. So they said, yes, we we did help in in these murders that Meaty stated. And uh, the farmhand Robert Bennett was also held, though he contended that he was innocent, that he had nothing to do with the murders of david and romy yeah he never or the deaths we should say yeah well (laughs) yes let's be let's be fair the deaths um yeah bennett never really got in on the whole confession thing the the dudgeons threw him under the bus and then he's arrested and he's sort of then when they confess he's like i'm still not guilty here folks but he is held anyway so in august of 1922 they uh they arrest the lynch mob they arrest the mob. 20 men are arrested in Goodwill Township. Uh, the prosecutor, William Brandstrom, uh, says he, he wants to, quote, instill a regard for the law, which has been lacking in citizens of Nuego. Is that true, Sam? Is respect for law and order lacking out there? Uh, it's, it's a lot of, lot of rural country yeah. out there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it Rough at that. Place. So, Branstrom says that the uh, members of the mob are going to be charged with assault and battery. So Branstrom is going to prosecute the lynch mob. But as we're going to see, he's also going to prosecute the dudgeons based on partially on confessions that were coerced. Only I guess if the confessions are coerced by the cops, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense. (laughs) It's inconsistent because you read it and you're like, well, good. I'm glad they got those those lynch mob folks. Then you're like, but, but wait, you're still you're still rolling with right. this, though. <laughs> okay. Right. So then, based on Mita's confession that you heard before the break, uh, the authorities decide to exhume David's body, the father-in-law's body, to examine him for poison. And the state chemist says it's strychnine. We have found strychnine. And so that's in August, and then time rolls on. In September, the Dudgeon Boys... Alice, Meaty, and Bennett um, have decided to get rid of their lawyers and get new lawyers. And pretty quickly, probably based on the advice of the new lawyers, they repudiate the confessions they make. They say, look, we did not do it. That is not what happened at all. You know, we were we were forced, we were coerced, etc. Yeah. And the thing I think is interesting too is that, you know, when David, the dad, first died, they never suspected any foul play at all. It was only after, you know, these things started happening with um, 
with Romy and, you know, thinking perhaps he too was murdered that they're like, well, I guess you better look at David then. Let's look at him again. And, and, you know, they, they got meaty to, to confess to that. And it just seems like everybody thought, well, this is a great time to get those dungeons out of our hair. (laughs) So let's, let's get them for all we can. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's pretty telling if we look back at the lynch mob, what the, uh, what the, the, the leaders are, I'm sorry, not, not lynch mob vigilance committee, right? Mm. Because yeah, you gotta, you gotta class it up. Um, what they said is like the neighborhood won't be safe until something's done about these people. Well, it wasn't like there was a murder spree. Okay. Maybe two is a spree, but, um, is two is, I don't know if two is a murder spree, but at that point there was only like the one murder. There's just Romy, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a sense even from their own words that they had it in for these folks. And we know from the the previous history that, you know, lots of bad blood, lots of, uh, lots of ill feeling. So, so if we get back to, to the newspapers, um, Maida's trial for the killing of David, dad, David, <laughs> um, I always, I always want to clarify which, yes. which we're talking about here, um, began on October 10th. And according to the newspaper, more than a score of witnesses have been subpoenaed by the prosecution, but it has been intimated the prosecutor will depend largely upon alleged confessions made by the defendants and statements given to newspapermen. The confessions the defense is expected to contend were forced from the respondents. So, you know, they're going to call these witnesses, but really, you know, the, the thing that the prosecution is looking at is these this set of confessions, which, of course, the defense, this new defense that they have is going to say, no, no, we, we can't count on that. Um, Alice is going to be tried for her role uh, in the death of Romy following Maida's trial. So then, then that was October 10th. On October 16th of 1922, the news Palladium, um, they say that Wilbur Dungeon was arrested for firing at Roy Cook's vehicle. Um, so this is sort of a, an offshoot here, but Roy Cook um, was the son-in-law of David Hodell. So he had married dad David's <laughs> um, daughter um, and he was driving, th- his truck was driving through swamp country and Wilbur Dudgeon, one of the dungeon boys, fired at the vehicle, um, taking out family aggression, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Cook wasn't in the vehicle though, but if he had, he would have been shot. So this is just, you know, sort of adding to this idea, this, this story is adding to this idea that, you know, the dungeons were no good people and 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 we got to get them out of here. By the end of the month, October 25th, um, the News Palladium highlights the attitude of some newspaper writers towards the region. So we mentioned that we're going to be using a lot of these newspaper articles that were from um, these larger cities or areas that are further away from, from White Cloud than the local newspaper sources. And again, we will talk about that, but I found it, we found it particularly interesting how, how they paint the people of White Cloud. So, um, so let's read this uh, from the newspaper. An old man poisoned like a useless animal, his dying son beaten until he ceased to quiver. This is the amazing lack of valuation of human life that is laid to Michigan's limber lost. Sam, what is limber lost? So limber lost, they're 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 using the term to describe this this region where 
the 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 trees of trees are gone, right? It's this area where it's it's been desolated by by the lumbering industry. And I had only heard this um being referred to areas um in it's Indiana, yeah. right? The girl of the limber lost. Yeah. Um I'd never ever heard it referred no. in, in reference to any area outside of that. Yeah, I always assumed Limber Lost, uh Gene Stratton Porter's Girl of the Limber Lost book, yeah. a well loved children's book from the the early 20th century. Um, I assumed Limberlost was like a specific place. Um, yeah, me too. I've never, I've, I've never <laughs> read the book, but um, no. But yeah, what's another example of how they described this uh, this place? Isolated region of swamps, stumps, and barren land north of here. Stories of disregard for law, social customs, and rights of others in the wilderness far from the beaten path. And then there's <laughs> there's a line that might be. <laughs> the the greatest line in this entire episode. I take great offense to this line. You should. <laughs> no, you should. being from the area, it's. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I wrote this down because I was like, ah, oh, these people. Um, they referred to the quote incongruous garb of the backwoods people. <laughs> so basically, it's like there's no regard for life, disregard for law <laughs> and the rights of others, and they dress horribly. You know, it's just like. <laughs> Just sure, throw that in um, while you're just piling on the 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 wretched refuse of the uh, West Michigan <laughs> desert. Um, just throw that in there. So this trial is or series of trials is incredibly complex, and we were talking about this when we were working on this episode that. Some podcast, not ours, could probably take an entire season and dissect this story in minute detail, going into complex legal arguments and and things like that. I'm not sure we're qualified to do that. So what, what you're getting here <laughs> is, is like this is a chapter. This run of episodes we're doing is a book. This is a chapter. It's not a whole book about this. So we're not going to go into excruciating detail of the legal maneuvering and the trials because, well, if you could see me, I'm shaking my head sort of <laughs> exasperatedly. No. Um, we're not foia anything. No, we're anything. not foia anything. <laughs> so it's incredibly complex. There are lots of motions by the defense for a change of venue because it's clear to the defense that the Dudgeons cannot get a fair trial in in this place. The town wanted the whole family found guilty. They dig David Hodel's body up again to look for poison. Um, this time, I think the defense wanted it dug up so their expert could examine it because you have you have dueling expert medical witnesses. The prosecution's expert says there's strychnine. The defense's expert says there's no strychnine, and these were both like well qualified. Uh, chemists and medical people weren't the um, the chemists for the defense weren't didn't weren't they Ferris professors? Yeah, they were from uh, Ferris uh, Ferris State University or whatever it was called in nineteen. Uh, yeah, it was probably Ferris State College at Something that time. Like that, yeah. Um, yeah, or or maybe it was Ferris. In- no, it might have been Ferris Institute. I went to Ferris. That's where my bachelor's degree is from. So <laughs> I was like, oh hey. <laughs> so then at one point, the jury is dismissed. So there can be all these non-jury sidebars so the jury isn't prejudiced because the defense attorney was talking about this ghost ruse that extracted these confessions and the prosecution and the judge agreed said, well, the jury doesn't need to hear this. So the jury was deprived of that testimony. 
there was an entire saga of Romy's two separate suicide notes and the debate over whether or not they were in his handwriting. Um, there was an expert witness from Detroit who said, I'm like a handwriting witness who said, yep, it's his handwriting. He wrote these suicide notes. The judge refused to allow that testimony for whatever reason. Uh, the state police claimed that Mita confessed that she wrote them. It was it was a mess. It was one thing after another. There were the, the lawyers were getting really snippy. My favorite line from this trial, uh, as reported in one of the newspapers, was when the um, defense attorney was cross-examining the state, one of the state police troopers. He asked the trooper if he got paid on commission for every conviction. And that was struck from the record. So it was, it was contentious. And then on October 26th, the jury goes into deliberations on this incredibly complex trial. Oh, I should say, suicide notes about Romy, this isn't a trial about Romy's murder. This is about David's murder. So you've got the prosecution bringing up the dead husband. Sam, I've seen enough law and order to know that this wouldn't fly. I don't think any of this would work in a court of law today. Yeah, you know, I guess I missed that <laughs> in the mess of all yeah. of this, that that was brought up um, for for David's um trial the the, the trial or, or that that was brought up in the trial for david and not Romy. right um right it's messy it is. <laughs> and i and i've heard these names for a long time and it's still messy yeah and and so after all of this mess and all of the conflicting expert testimony the jury is out for two hours they find <sighs> meaty guilty she's sentenced to life imprisoned at the detroit house of corrections a week later Romy's body is exhumed Based on suspicion of Mita, the state chemist claims strychnine. So there's another poisoning. So, which doesn't even make sense. No. I mean, why would they go? Because I mean, he was found hung, and, and the whole reason that that this whole all started is because they thought could he have been hit on the neck. Well, let's just throw in a little poison right. for good well, measure. Then we'll, then we'll get him good. <laughs> clearly, clearly, his wife liked to poison people. So yes. Alice Dudgeon's trial opens on November 20th, 1922. They spend a week looking for the jury selection. And here's a little taste of this is a little taste of what we deal with sometimes when working with <laughs> historical sources. Here's um, here's what the newspaper said. Nearly 150 talesmen were examined before the jury was completed and the difficulty kept Sheriff and his deputies busy rounding up residents of Nuevo County to form new panels for the last three days of this week's sessions. Sam, had you ever heard the term talesman before this? No, I like to think it's somebody who tells stories around a campfire. I, I had that. That's a that's <laughs> That's better than what I came up with. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's what we should refer to ourselves as, as we tell these podcast stories. Tales folk. <laughs> we're, we're tales folk. Um, a talesman is a person added to a jury, usually from among bystanders, um, to make up a deficiency in the number of jurors. Uh, the Latin talus de circumstantibus, people who are standing around. I can't imagine there was a time when just to bulk up the jury and alternates and things. They just sort of rounded up people hanging around the courthouse. But that's exactly what they did. And a lot of how this works depended on state law. 
And from what I was able to find, the most recent time this happened in the United States was 2008. So this is Mm -hmm. still a thing. So that's one of the things we run into because we went back and forth on what talesmen were and what it meant in this context because it seemed so odd. Why would they not be able to find jurors? And what I thought was that maybe they couldn't find jurors who weren't just vociferously biased against the Dudgeons. So it was difficult to find an impartial jury. But trying to figure out what these terms mean and how they were used at different times is difficult. Didn't we read in one of the articles, too, that sort of folks from all over the county were flooding in to see this? I mean, back then, watching a trial was a big deal. <laughs> you know, not like, you know, it's not it's not an activity to do today um, so much unless you're watching the recaps on TV. I mean, there are several towns around in that area, including Nuago itself and, and Fremont. White Cloud just happens to be the county seat for the county. So, you know, all of the folks from that area, I would imagine, were sort of flooding in to hear this if papers as far as, you know, Detroit and Lansing and and, and all over the place are reporting on it. Too. Right. So. so interesting little bit of legal history there. So the, the prosecution contended in Alice's trial that Meaty poisoned Romy, her husband. And when it didn't work, Mother Alice clubbed him to death with a rolling pin and convinced Lee and Herman Dudgeon to hang the body in the barn to make it look like a suicide. She was found guilty after less than two hours of deliberation, also sentenced to life in the Detroit House of Corrections. So Meaty is found guilty for David's death. Alice is found guilty for Romy's death. That's just how the verdicts worked out. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sam... Another interesting thing I found related to this in Mm -hmm. the sense that it was on the same page as this story (laughs) is an important bit of 1920s cultural information and a a great bit of um, information for those who need to find ways to be more popular. The the headline says, hip pocket (laughs) flask lures flappers, lecturer finds. And basically, there is a... An expert in uh, New York City who um, who declares that that pocket flasks full of bootleg liquor are what the women really look for in a man. Rides, reels, and rum are the three chief causes of the downfall of young girls, and the newest of these is rum, says the <laughs> superintendent of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. So this is an actual story. Um a special report for the Detroit Free Press about the danger of young men with hip pocket flasks. Maybe if Carl Sailors had had his own hip pocket flask, Meaty would have stayed with him and none of this story would exist today. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know? And so Meaty thought, hey, he's the fella, this Romy guy. Sorry, Carl. Hip pocket flask, man. <laughs> Anyways, back to more relevant Yeah, I things. know, I know. But it's, it's fun. <laughs> what, what's the point of digging through old newspapers if you can't, you know, bring gems like this to the attention of the listening public? All right. So now let's get to the Dungeon Boys then. Um, Lee and Herman. Uh, the News Palladium reports in December of 1922 that they are charged with complicity for the hanging of Romy's body. So they are put on trial along with Bennett, who was their their hired hand. Um, And it's set to begin in February of 1923. 
There are lots of, of changes that happen. The venue changes, the attorney changes, um, which means that this doesn't actually get started until July. Lee Dudgeon is found guilty of complicity and Herman and Robert Bennett were found not guilty. Lee gets a long manslaughter sentence and he is sentenced to the Ionia State Prison. So Lee and Alice's cases are appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court. Mady's does not, however, because the paperwork was not filed on time. So this is one of those cases of, you know, processes and red tape and and how errors can can really screw something up. Um, a new trial was ordered and eventually Lee and Alice were both freed. Um, so they did not live out those sentences. Alice then um, would die in 1935, and Meaty would apply for and be denied parole numerous times. So she's still down at the Detroit House of Corrections until July 1949, when Governor G. Menon Williams, who is the governor who had the Mackinac Bridge built, um, fun side note, um, and he commuted her sentences, and Mady was released in August. She then died a few years later. So she really did spend most of the rest of her life uh, in prison. And I, I wanted to, to to mention that Lee was was freed after his new trial because his role, his complicity, was basically moving the body from the house to the barn. That's what he was convicted of manslaughter on and the the judge basically said it's not actually a crime to move a body you know the body was already dead so how can he be convicted of manslaughter if he mm -hmm. moved a body that was already yeah. dead so the judge basically just said no this is dumb um so <laughs> and then alice I, I think at some point alice was just judged too old and feeble to stand trial i, I think that's mm. why she was eventually eventually freed. Yeah. So so then we can talk for a moment about, you know, uh, the, the perspectives, the views, the opinions that these different sources that we have obviously take. Um, so we can tell from the language that's used in the newspaper articles from Detroit and Benton Harbor and Lansing that the city reporters were not at all sympathetic to the folks of White Cloud. And, and we've mentioned this already, but now that we've made it through the story, we're kind of going to wrap up, you know, these sources and, um, and give them our final sort of this is the value they bring and and this is what what we need to look out for um but but these newspaper reporters viewed the white cloud folks as odd uneducated backwoods people who couldn't be trusted in in this matter whatsoever um none of them they were just the white cloud people <laughs> um and and you know they were they were out for blood basically so these articles generally present the dungeons as victims in a Salem-esque witch hunt, um, which isn't entirely without reason um, with when we consider, you know, the, the drama with the toxicology report, the problems with the confessions, looking at these multiple suicide notes, throwing out some of this different evidence. Once, once you start looking at it, um, it really does feel like all of the tables were turned and, and everything was pointed at the dungeons um, for perhaps things that that there was really no they were they were a scapegoat um in, in some yeah, ways yes. of for a guy who died of a stroke and a guy who maybe didn't kill himself but here's the thing courts aren't supposed to figure out necessarily what the truth is they're supposed to 
weigh the evidence and come to a verdict mm-hmm. accordingly. And I'm not saying one, I'm not sure what I'm saying, but it's strange, isn't it? Yes. It doesn't feel like they weighed the evidence fairly um, or evenly, I think. Um, that's that's how I feel reading, you know, the, the variety of reports and accounts that we have. Yeah. And and after the fact, uh, Harry Spooner, who we've we've mentioned a, a few times here, the account he put together was largely based on an interview with Mita. And um, in the show notes, we'll include a link to Mita's handwritten, sort of the scan of her handwritten um, story of her life, which is uh, difficult to read. But he used a lot of that in uh, in his account. And he spent a lot of time and effort working to get her paroled. He was assisting her in those parole efforts. His account does include a lot of local details about the attitudes of the people toward the Dudgeons and, and their concerns. But it's it's a very sympathetic account. It, it's um, it's sort of one of those things that's halfway between a primary source and a secondary source. He wasn't there at the scene, but he was talking to the eyewitnesses. So it, it's one of those things where, yes, this is of the time, but a little bit after, if that makes sense. And and it has a lot of details Um you know, I mean, very specifics about, you know, we kind of glossed over a lot of the movements of Maida and Romy and, you know, how when they went, you know, back to move in with her parents and um, fights that were being had and Carl Saylor showing. I mean, there was a whole lot going on that was even hard for us to kind of parse out specifically what was going on. Um, but it was rich with those details again because he interviewed Meta himself, but again, you're then relying on memory right. and um, and perhaps the way that that she, of course, wanted to present herself, anyways. So, um, grain of salt. <laughs> and speaking of memory, in 2015, a book came out by a woman named Dorothy Hodel Brooks. She was a descendant of the Hodels. Her father, well, her Romy was her uncle, basically. So her mm-hmm. father was Hollis Hodel. And she is a, a poet, and, and that's sort of how she writes. It's called A Certain Sadness, The Untimely Deaths and Family of David and Romy Hodel in 1920s Rural Nuego County, Michigan. And it's a weird book. I, I read it, and it's weird. It's a mixture of family history. There's an account of the murders and the trials, and there is a lot of poetry. And the way she structured it is a little bit of the story and then how it affected an individual member of the family and then taking that family member's life like all the way up until their death like in the 1970s or whatever it was it was weird and and while her narrative is based mostly on the same types of newspaper sources we used um Dorothy Hodel Brooks mostly I'm not going to say fictionalizes but she is dramatizing a lot of these family mm-hmm. stories. She's adding dialogue. It's like structured, like a narrative with dialogue, like a, like a story and, um, creative, non creative, nonfiction. <laughs> and, and, you know, she, uh, I think she's like 85 or something now. Um, mm. the last, the last I checked when I checked, I think she was 85. <laughs> um, so she checking daily. <laughs> yes. Right. She, um, she did talk to these people, but there's some things about it that are, sort of maybe maybe understandable she is not a fan of the dudgeons at all 
Mm -hmm. Uh, She very much takes the side of the Hodels. And she actually does uh, make some interesting points. She expresses a lot of frustration, a whole appendix to the book. Frustration over the perception that in 1949, Meaty was pardoned. When in fact, she was not. Her sentence was commuted. And Brooks goes into, you know, the difference between a pardon and a commutation. A pardon means this verdict is wiped out. A commutation was, ah, we're going to let you out of jail. But you still mm-hmm. did it. And she, so she says, nope, nobody ever said officially that she was innocent. But that's the inference that people make. I don't know if I've seen that inference in any of the news reports or stories. Um, maybe she's seen it in her own personal interactions with people, but I, I think she's assuming some feelings that might not be there. And I, I think one of the most valuable things it does is it offers some balance because none of the newspaper stories really went into the Hodel family. They weren't locals to West Michigan, mm-hmm. but she's, she's, she's bitter. She's still bitter. And you get the impression that this, really, really did traumatize the family in a significant way. Not just the deaths, but the trial and the publicity and all of those things. And it really highlights the difference between history and memory. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, the popular conception of history, um, especially local history, history isn't the past. History is the bits of the past we choose to remember and presented in a way that we want to remember them. Um, And as a public historian, Sam, how do you sort of deal with this dichotomy between history and memory? Yeah. I mean, it's hard because I deal with it daily (laughs) in, in the work that in the, my, my day job, Um, you know, the, the, place where I work, I deal with the memory of a, of a family. Um, we have their archives that we manage, you know, we're digitizing those, we're doing things with those, we research in those to create programs and house tours and things like that. And um, since descendants still live in the area and come back to the area regularly and um, people in town knew them, I hear stories a lot. And you know, I mean, you respect the story, right? You smile, you thank them for sharing, you're so happy to to hear that. But then you kind of have to evaluate it with everything else that you have, um, what you know about the people, you know, how does this hold up when you compare it to the actual hard sources, the evidence that you have um, in, in the archive, in the collection, and um, it d- doesn't make sense to accept it. And, you know, we're always adding to, sometimes correcting, um, tweaking, massaging <laughs> um, the the truth that we, not the truth, but the story that we have because we'll find new evidence. And sometimes those new stories that we hear are wonderful and great. Um, and sometimes they kind of add to an idolization um, of these people. Um, they become sort of these larger than life entities who are super great and awesome and can do no wrong. Um, and and that's a problem too. And so we just, you have to try to balance everything and it's not easy um, and not anybody can do it. And so when you're dealing with sort of local history types or people who aren't in history, um, you know, they don't always have the training or, you know, the, the experience doing that kind of work. And so we need to, um, you know, 
respect the people, um, appreciate the people who who do have that um, have that training and and can bring that sort of critical eye to things, and sometimes the distance um, from from the subjects and the matter as well. So, Sam, what do we need to make this a fuller story? Because we are aware that there are some gaps yes. in our knowledge here. Yeah. So we really would love more local sources. Um, we tried to get a hold of local newspapers. White Cloud had a newspaper at the time. Um, and there were others from the surrounding towns that probably would have had very different perspectives on on the matter. And unfortunately, none of those were available to us from a distance. Um, we are at least two hours away from these libraries where they are held on microfilm. <laughs> and, and so access is very limited. And I think that's one of the problems that you know, any researcher, whether you're a professional historian or someone interested in local history can can often come across is just the accessibility of the sources. You know, if it's not digitized, which so many times small libraries and museums don't have the budgets to do that or the um, capacity to do something like that, uh, you know, you have to make the time to actually go to the place and then deal with a microfilm reader. And I'm a historian and I don't even like dealing with microfilm readers. <laughs> I'm okay with them if I bring Dramamine um, because <laughs> they, they make me a little seasick. But we are continuing to look at these things. We will have potential updates for you down the road about the, uh, the Dungeon Swamp mystery. It'll take time, probably, but we'll get it. <laughs> Okay, so to put this all together, um, we thought we would each take take our turn sort of sharing our perspectives, what happened, you know, kind of what, what our take on the whole thing was. And um, I'll start off by saying I don't think David Hodel was murdered. <laughs> I think the, the old the old man died. Um, and that's that's really unfortunate. Um, and something shady happened with Romy. I'm convinced there's there are enough weird little things um, going on there that I that I do think something something amiss might have happened, whether it was, you know, the the crazy confession that that we have that was made under duress. I, I don't I don't probably think that was it. Um, but but a thing happened. The thing that I have taken away from looking into this more though is sort of how this sheds light onto a story that I grew up with. Um, so one of the things that in looking through this entire story, all of the newspaper articles we found, the Spooner account and everything, there's no mention of incest, right? And that was one of the things that's a big part of the the ghost story, the legend of Dungeon Swamp, um, is that there were incest babies. And if you go out there at night, you can hear the babies crying <laughs> and, you know, something like that. And, you know, we can't find anything there about rumors of incest, um, nothing that was brought up by the newspaper men. And I feel like a Detroit newspaper person probably would have said, oh, and they accused her of this, right. you know, or something right. like that. And it it wasn't there. So that's a weird one um, that probably just sort of, I don't know, came up um, as, as this family was vilified in the town through decades, right? Because the dungeons, you know, they are either imprisoned or moved away from White Cloud and the Hodels aren't from White Cloud. So the story that White Cloud is left with is is the story that the townspeople had of of the dungeons being these horrible, murderous, angry, violent people. And um, so that's what, you know, kind of became a legend and things were thrown in there 
ghosts were thrown in there, perhaps from from the whole confession thing. Um, but also, you know, as people start getting interested in in ghost stories and things, it's a land where bad things happen. So there have to be ghosts, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and so I find that interesting. And I think that's sort of the most interesting takeaway from all of this, um, but also sort of the power of, I don't want to say suggestion, but that, I don't know, it's kind of mass hysteria, I guess, the witch hunt thing, all of these people coming together and and accusing these poor people of a thing that there was really no evidence for until it was hinted at. And then everybody believed it and it ruined this family. Yeah, I, I think... I think the only the only incest thing I came across there was sort of a, a document um, put together, and uh, we'll, we'll give a link to um, one of the places that compiled a whole lot of sources that uh, that helped us out. A, a group called the October Project that looks at weird stories in, in Michigan, and there's a, a timeline that was put together by a researcher several years ago, and um, it mentioned the incest rumors and sort of quoted a newspaper account, didn't cite the newspaper account, but it quoted something along the lines of unnatural relations within the family. And and that's mm, gotten right. blown up into incest babies buried in the barn, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the people who run the site said, we've found no evidence uh, of this. And these people mm-hmm. do a lot of really in-depth research about things. I think from my outside perspective, looking at this, having never heard of this in my entire life until a couple months ago, my big takeaway from this is David died of something, stroke, aneurysm, something, one of the many things mm-hmm. that makes an old man fall over in the snow dead. Romy, something's weird there. Something, something is absolutely weird there. And I don't know. It's one of those things where the evidence and the testimony and the confessions and the coercion by the mob first and then by the state police is so has so tainted almost every mm-hmm. aspect of this that finding the truth would be would be very difficult. But I think my big takeaway is just how tenuous the the sort of focus of the judicial system was at the time. Mm. It just seems like these this court was a free for all. The defendants were railroaded and it just seemed it seemed like and I don't mean any offense Sam it seemed like every stereotype of crooked small town justice I've ever been terrified of when driving through a small town worried my car is going to break down. You know, oh my gosh, the crooked <laughs> sheriff is going to lock me up. You know, that that sort of I'm sure everybody has that fear, right? Of crooked sheriffs. You know, I never I've have. That's that's never been always a fear that always terrified riding <laughs> driving through small towns. My car in the middle of the night, my car is going to break down. I'm going to get arrested for some made up crime. <laughs> And, you know, nobody's ever going to hear from me again. As a woman, I have different right. I, to worry I've watched about. a lot of a lot of really bad, like horror and similar yeah. movies from oh, the yeah. 70s where, where crooked sheriffs do a lot of stuff. So yeah. it's one of these stories that I think first interested me because of the, the sort of ghost aspect created almost out of mm. whole cloth based on just like the mood <laughs> of the land and these stories of bad things happening and the, the rumors and innuendo of of incest. But Sam, how much do you think people want there to be a supernatural element, despite maybe a lack of good evidence for it? You know, I don't know. It's like I said, I mean, I heard about it growing up and and 
people did, but it's not like we weren't daring ourselves to go spend the night in the swamp or anything like that. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, stereotypical town with stereotypical haunted house where teenagers, you know, lock themselves in the house overnight and slowly are murdered by ghosts or something like that. I think at this point, even even me reading it, it's more of a, I don't want to say a pride or an ego thing, but it'd be like, oh, no, we didn't do that. <laughs> right? Like that... Our, our people couldn't have been that that way or, or done those These things. People um, must have been crooked and bad people because right, yeah, know, we're a fine, upstanding town full of fine, upstanding people. Um, and and right. I'm, I'm sure yeah, you all are like... now. But um, <laughs> yeah, and the the ghost stuff just from the the researching and stuff I've done, it doesn't seem like it's you know welcome to White Cloud, home of the Dungeon Swamp Ghost or anything no. like that. It's no. um a very small time local story that has not been sort of yeah. exploited for you don't have a festival, do you? God, no. Dungeon Swamp Murder <laughs> Festival. <laughs> no. And and while we're talking about the ghost thing, I just want to say because I took some time watching these ghost hunts on YouTube and you should not go out into the swamp at night. Nope. Um People own the properties and you should not be there. There are also bears and deer and bobcats and all kinds of things that could either hurt you or, you know, I shine, you know, I don't know. When you watch them, it's just like, come on, kids, because they're generally younger people. Come on, kids. Like, do you not know what's in the woods in the dark? Um and and I know from watching enough ghost hunters that you need a controlled environment in order to, you know, substantiate any proof. And the open forest slash swamp is not at all any kind of semi-even controlled environment. So ghost hunts in the dungeon swamp are not not a good idea and, and not reliable for it's, anything. It's, it's almost like <laughs> a weird hybrid of ghost hunt and Bigfoot hunt. Yes. Yeah. I saw a light over there, you know, and it's clearly it's it's a deer. Yeah. <laughs> we will return with more of the Dutch and Swamp later we in will. later weeks. We've got things cooking. Thanks for listening. The Dungeon Swamp Mystery was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. See you next time. Don't get lost in the lore. <laughs>